lights go down and shadows fall. Welcome to a world of mysteries, of conspiracies, of hidden and forgotten knowledge. There's a world more strange, more frightening, and more fascinating than most people ever imagine or dare to contemplate. Your parents, your teachers, never told you the whole story, either out of ignorance or fear. Your politicians may know, but they keep their mouths shut. The door is opening. Throw off your chains and blinders, arm yourselves with the truth, and take a walk along the razor-sharp precipice of the Outer Edge. Welcome to another fantabulous episode of The Outer Edge. Surf's up, Cowabunga. I'm with Michael Mott, here with my pal Tim Schwartz. And I'm uh, here to cajole and infuriate you, if possible. And uh, it's a wonderful Sunday evening where I am. It is October the 26th. It's the 27th where Tim is. That's right. It's already, already Monday here. Yes, soon we shall both be on the same dateline uh tim how are you man hey i'm doing uh great mike i just uh i want to tell our listening audience that the uh the, the the music you heard before our intro was called signals from malibu and that uh that was a song that uh was written and uh, uh produced by our guest tonight meryl frankhauser and uh, this all has to do with uh, uh some uh, allegedly recorded signals from uh, uh, uh which which maybe came from an uh, an alleged underwater base off of uh, uh Malibu about 200 wow. feet off on the ocean floor and uh we'll get to, uh, uh Merrill to uh, talk about uh about that and uh, uh and another song uh based on these recordings and we'll will air will run right. both of these songs um completely you know, right. during, during the process of this show. But, uh, see, that, that just, uh, that brings me uh, into something here since, you know, uh, we're, we're going to be talking about UFOs and other things right. with, uh, with Merrill tonight. Um, I think you have something to say about the subject yourself, don't you, Mike? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's been a weird couple of years for me. I mean, uh, a couple of years ago, I accidentally taken a series of pictures. I, I captured something anomalous on a digital camera. In a series of photos that were uh, taken like a, a second apart, they were trying to capture a skyline, right. and I got something there that I did not see with my naked eye. And of course, I did a blog post about this. It it actually was part of a, a larger uh, article on the blog. And another thing happened that was kind of anomalous, where I found something kind of strange, and did a blog post about that because I believe personally, I believe that when you have a strange experience, um, you're not doing service to uh, the knowledge base by covering it up or being worried about what people say, what people think. You know, if, if people, one of the reasons we don't understand what's going on with a lot of this stuff is because nobody has the gut. Well, not nobody, but a lot of people don't have the guts to talk about it. They're worried about what their boss will say, right. what their church will say, what their family will say, you know, that kind of thing. And they're being called a kook or whatever. And the fact is that these anomalous things happen to people all the time. And Tim, you know that. I mean, Yep. That's How right. many people have talked to you and have said, "Just don't use my real name," or practically everybody anymore? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's going to be even worse than it used to be, and you know it kind of puts guys like you and me in a strange position because when people tell you that, it, it puts you in a situation where if you had to prove who they are, they meant you know 
they don't want you to, to do that. And, you know, with the, with the uh, anomalous footprint that I found, something like that kind of happened. And I had a guy, basically a Bigfoot expert, a guy who is a, big, a Bigfoot footprint expert, who <laughs> took great offense at the fact that my footprint from the uh, – and it is a footprint. It's a fossilized footprint, and it's about 40 million years old, maybe 35, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, he did not want it to be what it is, and so he tried to ridicule it and stuff. And I pointed out that – you know, that uh, it actually looks better in terms of being able to tell what it is than most Bigfoot casts do. And, uh, you know, and so he said, well, who, I told him I had three medical doctors who had verified that it was a footprint, a fossilized footprint. And and he didn't believe me. He said, well, who are these people? What are their names? You know, mm-hmm. so, I, so I gave him two out of three names. Right. I got, I got the permission first. And, of course, one of them is a podiatrist. He said, it is, you know, an upright walking Humanoid footprint. Sorry, it is. So I, I gave him their names, and that was the last I heard about it. I never heard anything else. Um, I guess he never contacted them. But I told him how to get in touch with them and gave him the contact info. They're in my my Facebook friends. Here they are. Contact them if you want to talk to them. I don't guess he ever did. But uh, the thing is that those guys, those are a couple stand-up guys. You know, they're like, yeah, use my name. You know, this is what it is. And these are medical doctors. Right. And But unfortunately, it's not always the case where that happens. And so when you have an anomalous experience, you should have the courage to tell somebody. You know, you want to be, you, you, you want to be anonymous about the anomalous, then go ahead and do that. Right. But it always is better if you do leave the option open to back up your story. Because if somebody like, like myself or Tim tells your story, and believes you and listens to you and, 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 and evaluates what you have to say based on evidence and everything else, we go to all this trouble and put ourselves out there. It, it's helpful to us for us to be able to say, yes, this is a real person. Mm-hmm. A- am I correct here, Tim? Yes, you are. You, know, you, are correct. you are correct, sir. Thank you. Thank you. But, yeah, you know, the thing is, it, 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 it helps not just the credibility. It helps the science. To be able to say this is real, here's the, here's your witness, and that's why you know I don't know why all of a sudden I've had these these weird things happen lately with with my own things. You know, both times it was accidental, and isn't mm-hmm. that always how it happens? Sure. Uh, that's why that's why I have a problem with this idea of people calling down UFOs. I have to wonder with that type of thing. You know, if that's not if there's not something else going on there, um, because it seems like the it, from what I've learn from talking to people it usually happens when you don't expect it right and this leads into what you were asking me about and what i'm leaning up to um (laughs) thursday night uh was the 23rd of october 2014 and again just as when i found the 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 weird fossilized footprint i guess it was about nine o'clock at night this time though I, i was walking my dog we have dogs outside, big, mean dogs who will eat you up. And then we have a little dog in the house, uh, uh, Minister Schnauzer. And I took him out uh, about 9 o'clock. And we walked about 12, 15, about 15 feet out from my door. And I looked off to the west, due west of, of my – we, we live in the country. And I looked off to the due west where there's these, there are these lovely hills. I mean, it looks like uh, – Middle Earth or something over there most of the time. It's just beautiful. 
and there's a gap in the trees which were planted down at the front down there, and, and you can see there's like a, a state a state road. It's called a highway. I guess you could call it a highway. It's, you know, it's a state road. And then there are uh, these beautiful hills on the other side just rolling off as far as you can see, and they're, they're getting pretty high. And there are a few large trees up on the top, but just a few, uh, widely spaced. And I looked off, and it, it's jet black. The moon hasn't risen yet. And there was this really bright light at the top of the hill, um, just a really large white light. And I walked it further out. I thought, well, is that Venus? No, it's not Venus because it's too big. It's too bright. And I walked out further with my dog. And I noticed that this light was up on top of the hill. And it had like a, a string of lights coming off of one side, like a, like a line coming down, almost like a part of a tripod or something. But it was just one line, and it was blinking Multicolored lights, red, green, blue, like that. And now, close by to this, I guess about 100 yards away, no more than that, about 300 yards away, and much taller is a cell phone tower. And the cell phone tower has one white light on top of it most of the time, except when it's bad weather and it starts flashing different stuff. But it was a very clear night, and the cell phone tower was not even, was hardly blinking at all, like every now and then it would blink. And this other thing was on top of the hill, like I said, like maybe 300 yards away, directly straight west from where I was standing. And I stood there and I looked at it and I thought, now what the hell is that? Because there's nothing over there. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a farmer's field and there are cows and, and that kind of stuff. And so I stood there looking at this thing and I thought, well, this is really strange. So I go back in the house. Of course, now, my elderly mother is here. Mm-hmm. Okay. And... You know, we're here to help take care of her and stuff, too. And, and my son lives here with me. And so I came back in, and I said, hey, you know, there's there's something weird out here. I mean, I don't I won't say UFO, but it is unidentified. It does appear to be up in the air, you know. So I went back out, and when I, when I, I stood out there for maybe four more minutes by myself, and then my elderly mother came out. And she's like, oh, my God, what is that, you know? And she stood there looking at it. While she was watching it, more lights came down from it uh, in different directions, almost like different, um, um, I want to say, as if it were extending something out that had lights on it and they were blinking, almost like, again, like tripods or legs or something. But, again, it was up in the air. Right. So about five minutes, I don't know what my son was up to, but he came out. And when he came out, you know, it was still out there very bright. And we all walked down there, and we're, we're in the front yard here looking at this thing. And suddenly it started this thing where it would it would turn itself off and on. It would blink on, blink off, blink on. And, and by that I mean not just the big light, but every light would just extinguish. And it looked strange. It didn't look like when you throw a switch so much as it – almost like it was being – like there was a curtain coming down or something. It, w- it was really weird looking. And uh, so it would do this this weird off-on thing. So while we were doing that, while we were watching it, um, an airplane was coming. And the airplane was coming from the south. And it was it, it was basically flying between us and this object. And it was, okay. it, was it was very high. Not very high. It was, you know, like like 
maybe 300 feet up. It wasn't, you know, it was higher than the object was. Mm-hmm. And so the airplane goes by, and it goes off to the north, and it disappears finally. You know, the noise is gone. As soon as the airplane was gone, this thing starts drifting to the south and heading to the uh, – um, I'm sorry, my printer's making noise. I don't know if you can hear that or not. <laughs> yeah. I don't, know why, I, I don't know why in the hell it's doing that, but it is. You know, uh, electronics are retarded. That's anyway, right. it starts floating off to the south real slow, okay? It's as if, you know, okay, the airplane's gone. Now I can move. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I'm going to sit here on this hilltop, and I'm going to blink until that airplane goes by, and then I'm going to move. You know, that that's all I can think. It's like hide in plain sight. Look at me. Oh, I'm just a cell phone tower over here blinking, and it wasn't a tower, okay? So like I said, as soon as the, as the plane was gone, this thing starts moving. And hmm. it, it moved down, and my son and I had to walk north in, in the yard to keep it in view for as long as we could because it was going behind some pine trees down at the bottom of our hill here but you can still see it behind the trees and all of a sudden it started it did a big loop and it just started moving real fast and it pat and we have the big tall pines beside the yard out here and it went past those went over those trees it came right by where, where we live here on our property right. it passed about i'd say maybe 200 feet at the most above mm-hmm. those trees and it went by very fast like, if it were an airplane going that fast, the noise would have been huge, okay? It went by, and all we could hear was like a very faint, almost like the wind blowing, like a like that. Mm-hmm. You know, that's all we could hear. And it was so faint, you could barely hear it. And this thing went by, and we got a good look at it. And so that's the picture that's on the webpage, and it's on the uh, – on our Facebook page. Right. Now, the thing about this thing is it, it it's goofy looking. It looks like something. Uh, like, if you were to tell uh, a first or second grader to draw, and my son actually drew this, and he's actually a very good artist. Yeah, but, it was really good. But, but if you were to tell a first or second grader to draw something that was a spaceship or a super super duper jet or something, this is the kind of thing they would come up with. Okay? Mm. You understand what I'm saying? Right, yeah. It's like, it's totally irrational in the way it looks. It's not logical, okay? This thing goes by and it's got these big giant lights, like flat panel lights on this supposed tail fin structure, and they're blinking. And some of them are dim and some of them are bright. And then it's got these things on the top, what looks kind of like a fin and a long pole-looking deal sticking up. And it's got lights and they're all blinking. And the front nose thing, the whole shape of the front is kind of like a a fake looking uh, I don't know what you would call it, like the nose of a plane maybe, or it's supposed mm-hmm. to look like that, and it's glowing, and this huge bulb thing is on the bottom hanging down, way too big for an airplane to carry, okay? Hmm. You understand what I'm saying? Right. Aerodynamically, yeah. it's not possible for an airplane to, to carry something that big beneath it. And it the object itself was dark, but it had all these bright lights on it. Some of them were dim, some of them were bright, and they're blinking. And the to- the dome thing hanging down didn't blink, and the thing on the front didn't blink. But as it went by, we got a really good look at it. And all I could think of after looking at it and then after the drawing and looking at the drawing, it looks like 
it's basically a saucer shape with a dome mm-hmm. hanging down. And then mm-hmm. it's got these protuberances on it that are supposed to maybe look like it's an airplane. So, again, you know, all I can figure is they aren't functional. They can't be functional. Okay, there were no wings on this thing. No wings. Yeah. Okay. So it's got a fin on the top and a, and a big tail-looking structure like an airplane. So all I can figure is this stuff is designed to make people think, oh, I'm an airplane. Don't, don't, don't mind me. I'm just an airplane right. or something. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's just totally ludicrous how this thing is does not – it's not it's not rational in terms of aerodynamics how this thing looked. Okay, mm-hmm. and you know, again, it goes back to the whole idea of hiding in plain sight. You know that this thing that maybe that's that's what this was all about. I don't know. You know, I know that it went by, and we we watched it go, and then for a couple hours late afterward, with just a lot of uh, uh, sort of wilderness area behind us, and and our dogs were running back there barking constantly. You know, hmm. really upset. Like, but they would only go so far, then they would stop, which is also kind of unusual for them. Um, <clears throat> but uh, you know, I would say that this was, you know, and, and uh, you know, okay, there are three witnesses here: myself, my son, and my mother. We all three saw this thing, okay. And the whole thing lasted anywhere from twelve to fifteen minutes. That's a long time. Yeah, yeah. It was really dark, and we didn't get a close look, look up at it until it just zipped by us real fast. You know, it drove and drove, flew over these trees next door, headed to wherever. Um, but really, when you look at the drawing, you can see what I'm talking about. It's really a saucer shape with a dome hanging down beneath. Well, I didn't, you know, I talked to somebody earlier tonight, and this person lives in a town about four miles away. No, I'm out in the country, but she lives in a town about four miles away. Mm-hmm. And she told me that uh, Tuesday night, which was two nights before, about midnight or 1230 actually, she went outside to do something and she walked up to the end of her carport and she saw a light floating across the street. But like right behind the houses across from her house, there's a dairy farm. Hmm. By the way, the people who own that dairy farm also own the same land across the street from me, which is kind of weird. I just thought mm-hmm. of that. But anyway, there are cows on both properties. Okay. I don't know if there's a connection or not. But she said she saw this light floating around, up and down, up and down. It was real big. And at first she thought it was the moon because at first it wasn't moving. But then it started moving real erratically and floating around. And then it kind of just floated away and it was gone. And I, I showed her this drawing. That is on the web page, and she said that the bottom dome shape on this drawing is exactly what it looked like. Huh. In other words, there was it was really dark, and she couldn't see anything but that one that dome shaped light that's hanging down that weird dome structure. It's really like a triple dome, weird shape. But that's all. I mean, in other words, it could have been the same craft that she saw two nights before, without the all the, all the top stuff turned on. So, you know, we have to ask ourselves, what's going on here? Because now, I know what I saw, okay? I, and my son saw it, and my mother saw it. And now I have a completely um, different person who doesn't live here, lives four or five miles away, and she saw mm-hmm. something that looks like the same thing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have to ask yourself, how often does this happen? How often do things like this hide in plain sight? 
because this thing was doing its best, in my opinion, to mimic the cell phone tower that was nearby. Right. As long as the plane was coming. And huh. then, yeah. And then, you know, when, when we got a look at it, as it went by, it was so goofy looking that it's almost, oh, you know, that's another thing about it. Okay. As far as I understand it, in aviation, there are rules about lights. Mm-hmm. You can't have a bunch of multicolored lights all over your vehicle, all over your aircraft. Exactly, exactly. This thing had red, orangish, sort of a rusty color, uh, yellow, green, greenish blue, weird color lights on it. Okay? Hmm. And the thing is that airplanes aren't allowed to do that. Helicopters aren't allowed to do that. Okay? There, there are rules to, you know, to aviation lights. And this thing was breaking all the rules. And like I said, it was totally silent, very fast when it finally took off. And it made no noise other than like a wind sound. We heard that, we heard it though. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so all I can say is we saw something. It was unidentified. It was flying. And it did appear to be an object. So, wow. I have, I have no idea where it came from, who was flying it, what, what it all means. But, uh, it was very weird, very strange. That, that's, uh, I tell you something, that, that is a wild sighting. And, and the, the drawing that your son made. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That is, yeah, it, it's, it's ridiculous. I'm like, we need to draw it. He said, well, dad, it looked ridiculous. I said, yeah, I know, but draw exactly <laughs> what you think you saw, you know? Well, and, um, that, and that's, and that's just it, you know, I mean, um, there's been a lot of times in in you know the history of UFO sightings that 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 people have seen something that is just it, it, the shapes is just so bizarre that yeah. you know I think people have a tendency then to discount it. Well, that's you know, what just I'm because of the bizarre shapes, you know. Yeah, because think about it. I mean, this thing looks so ridiculous, and and let us assume for a second that it is a saucer shape with a mm-hmm. bulb hanging down beneath it. Right. Okay. Would it be in their interest to make something look ridiculous so that if you do see it and you say, well, this is what it looked like, you know, then it's like, oh, yeah, right. Well, that's crazy. You know, know. Mm -hmm, I mean, mm -hmm. again, it it ties in with the whole idea of of disinformation, uh, um, sleight of hand sort of things going on. And. Yeah, we, I mean, we know what we saw. And when it was across the street, it was probably a little over a quarter of a mile away. Mm-hmm. And it was extremely bright, but it was a big white light. And I think that that was, who knows, maybe it was the bottom thing, maybe it was the nose thing. But it had lights coming off what looked like the bottom of it. But when it went by, all the lights were on the top, except for the big thing hanging down beneath it. And by, by what I mean is that they were like these... Almost like this tripod-looking thing going on, where it was sitting these light, flashing these lights on these, these uh, stru- I don't know what they would like a string of lights going right, down an right. angle, and mm. you know, so it just seems like there's a lot of deception going on with this, whatever this phenomenon is, mm. and of course we've talked about that before, but uh, well, you know, as, 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 and that's that's an interesting point that you make, though, because you know when you have something that is flying around in the dark um, with all kinds of, uh, of 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 weird, out of place lights. I mean, you can really um, 
disguise the shape of whatever the the whatever it is right. that that's beneath those lights by right. the way that you have the lights uh, you know arranged exactly yeah. and this thing was so big i mean it was about, at least as long as my house i mean mm-hmm. ryan thinks it was a 70 feet long it might have been and the thing is that it has these it had these big panels on the tail and they were lot they were lights and it had big panels on the side there's no way they were windows they were right. probably just like for display or something i don't know you know again to fool your eye to make you say what what the hell was that you know well, now, okay, were the lights, you know, especially the panels, were these lights bright enough that they they were reflecting off of the surface um, no, of the craft just, that you could get a better idea of its actual shape? You know, they they were they were bright, but not not as bright as like the the biggest, the brightest part was the so called nose of it, mm-hmm. and the and the dome thing hanging down beneath it. The right. other lights were nowhere near that as bright as those two parts were. So, Interesting. Um, I just think that there's a lot of disinformation with this stuff, even from these whoever's flying these things around. I, I don't, I don't think it's us, and by us I mean um, modern humans. I don't think that's who it is. I, uh, I don't necessarily think it's from outer space, though. This thing was not at all something you would think of as being something that would go into space. It almost looked like a utility type thing you know like let's go jaunt around a little bit let's go kill a cow you know that kind of thing i mean <laughs> well, and that's 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 you know, the other interesting thing though um why would something like this need all of these bright lights yeah exactly you know uh you're gonna go flying around in in the dark uh you know secretly possibly why yeah. do you have all these bright lights to uh, draw attention to yourself? Exactly. And that, that was the thing that when it was sitting across the, the the road over there and that we couldn't see that airplane coming. But if it's up in the air on that hilltop, it was probably already almost 100 feet up. It's probably 80, 90 feet up. Mm-hmm. And it could probably see that plane. Whoever was in it could probably see that airplane coming from, you know, from a long way off. So it's. Were they having a problem with whatever they used to like cloak themselves or whatever? I mean, because it it turned itself off and on probably seven or eight times. Right. You know, it would just do this weird flicker out, gone, and then boom, like inky black, and then boom, it was back. You know that wow. kind of thing. So could it be like, oh, we're trying to turn on the the <laughs> the light bending mechanism? Oops, it's not working. <laughs> oops, oops, you know. I mean, who knows? I have no way of knowing what what the deal is. I do know, though, that I do have a, another witness who now says that, that she did see the same object as far as the bottom part goes. So, mm-hmm. again, it's like that means that maybe, you know, they turned off the top and they were doing something else and they had to have that bottom part of it on in order to do whatever they were doing. Right. So, yeah, it was it was weird. I don't believe for a minute that the tail-looking thing is a functional tail. I don't believe that all the lights on the top really serve a purpose. I think it's all just for show. Hmm. Interesting. You know? Yeah. That's yeah, just, just, that's just really, really interesting, Mike. Yeah, um, it was well, and, and it's like, you know, when we, when we talked about this, uh, before, yeah. um, uh, you know, I, 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 I will be interested to hear if down the road, you know, you possibly, you know, don't have some interesting uh, 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 experiences in your home 
later on, you know. Uh, well, you know what? Polder guys, what have you, you know. Well, we're not we're not going to tolerate that. <laughs> well, I tell you, I tell you what, Mike. Um, we are right at the bottom of the hour here, so why don't we go ahead and um, go to our break? And when we come back, uh, we'll we will have our guest, uh, Meryl Fankhauser. And uh, I want to remind our listeners that uh, if you want to call in and participate, ask questions, uh, uh, give us some opinions, whatever, you know, uh, we'd love to hear from you. So give us a call at 786-245-8127. Of course, you can go and like us on Facebook. That's the Outer Edge Radio on Facebook. And if you want to join our chat room, go to psn-radio.com to chat live in our chat room. Uh, once again, our call-in number is 786-245-8127. So, uh, what do you say, Mike? Let's go to our break, and when we come back, uh, we'll have our guest, uh, Meryl uh, Fankhauser, and uh, we'll see, uh, maybe he'll give us his opinion on, uh, on, what, on what you saw. How about that? Sounds good. All right, so you're listening to The Outer Edge. Stay tuned for more fascinating stuff. I'm LeVar Burton, and I'm proud to be a book person. How do I choose a book? Sometimes it's the cover, sometimes it's the title. I guess I'm pretty visual. If a book's really impressing me and the writing is really good, I will peek and see what the last paragraph is. Because the endings of books should rock you. I am a book person. And if you're a book person, too, read to a child and spark a lifetime of ambition. Join me at bookpeopleunite.org because reading is fundamental. A public service announcement brought to you by Reading is Fundamental, Library of Congress, and the Ad Council. Green light. Hey, girl. School zone. I'm getting hungry. Car changing lanes. You want to meet me for pizza? Stop sign. Intersection clear. Yeah, street. Pizza sounds good. Ball in street? Girl in street! (gasps) 
It's hard to concentrate on two things at once, like texting and driving. Stop the text, stop the wrecks. How will you stop texting and driving? Tell us at stoptextstoprex.org. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. All systems are functional. And going to pass the reins to Mr. Jackal, the, the new king of radio. This is the Oz Man, one of the voices in the Jackal's head. Are we alone in the universe? Now, I'm a voice of the Jackal's head. But if could Is there life after death? I'm Nick Pope, and now I'm a voice inside the Jackal's head. Is the government keeping secrets from us? This is Stephen Bassett, and uh, I am now a voice inside the Jackal's head. Will the Cubs ever win the World <laughs> Series? I am now a voice inside the Jackal's head. And that was Boyd Pie. <laughs> who the hell are these voices inside my head? Listen live on the Jackal's head and find out. <laughs> Imagine no longer being tied down to your computer, but having the freedom to take live talk radio with you anywhere you go. TalkStream Live introduces our first ever iPhone application. The talk shows you follow now follow you. And your iPhone is now the fastest and easiest way to stay connected to the best talk radio on the Internet. Listen to live talk shows 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Mobile talk radio from TalkStream Live. Now available in the iTunes App Store. Driving has a rhythm all its own. Don't wreck it with a text. Before you get behind the wheel, silence your phone. Or better yet, designate a texter. For more text-free driving tips, visit stoptextstoprex.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Green light. Hey, girl. School zone. I'm getting hungry. Car changing lanes. You want to meet me for pizza? Stop sign. Intersection clear. Yeah, street. Pizza sounds good. Ball in street? Girl in street! <gasps> it's hard to concentrate on two things at once, like texting and driving. Stop the text. Stop the wrecks. How will you stop texting and driving? Tell us at stoptextstoprex.org. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. You're listening to The Outer Edge Radio with William Michael Mott and Tim Schwartz, only on PSN Radio. Welcome back to The Outer Edge. I'm Tim Swartz along with Mike Mott. And uh, the music that you're hearing in the background now is by our guest tonight, Merle Fankhauser. And uh, this one is called Sickles from Malibu. And uh, uh, Merle, I will uh, play both of the songs that you sent me in their entirety in just a little while. So um, uh, thank you very much for being with us tonight on The Outer Edge. Oh, I'm glad to be with you tonight, Tim. Oh, fantastic. Well, I, I tell you something. Um, I've always been a fan of your music. Um, 
and uh, uh, you sent me these uh, uh, a CD with these uh, two songs, Signals from Malibu and Messages from the Dome. And uh, I tell you something, I'm just I've just been captivated by them. They're just they're just absolutely fantastic. All right, <laughs> I'm glad you uh, like them. Oh uh, yeah, I really do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, why don't you? Uh, before before we really um, get into that, why don't you uh, tell our audience a little bit about yourself now? Uh, and I mean, let's 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 you know, I, I'm going to go and do the you know the the standard uh, talk show. Well, uh, you know, how did you get started in all this, Merrill? <laughs> yeah, uh, you're originally from Louisville, Kentucky, right? Yeah, I was born in Louisville, Kentucky, and. Uh... My dad uh, was a flight instructor, and he a- actually raced at Indianapolis in the 40s. Really? And, yeah. And we got tired of the cold winters in Kentucky, and he kept <laughs> telling us, we're going to move to California. And by golly, we did <laughs> when I was about 13 years old. And uh, we first ended up in Southern California, and uh, we... He ran a glider port there, sailplanes, and he towed sailplanes up. And I was always interested in flying, and he taught me to fly a Piper Cub. And I later on soloed in a Schweitzer 126 sailplane that I loved. And I was always fascinated by the thought of UFOs. And my dad was very open-minded, and and I would always talk to him about this, you know. And uh, anyhow, we ended up moving up to the central coast where I live now, which is on the coast of California, right in between L.A. and San Francisco. Mm. And when I was a teenager, about 17, uh, I had been playing guitars and ukulele since I was about 11 years old. And a high school group of high school friends, we formed a band, and the Ventures were our heroes at that time, the instrumental, you know, rock music. Mm-hmm. And because we were living right here on the coast and I started surfing, I started writing these instrumentals and putting uh, surfing titles to them. And we ended up getting a job in Pismo Beach, California, at this dance hall that held 1,500 people. And uh, it was the biggest dance hall at that time between L.A. and San Francisco. And all of the groups of the day, like uh, the Ventures and Dwayne Eddy and, oh, gosh, just tons of people would play there. The Coasters, Little Richard. We backed up little Anthony and the Imperials there. Cool. And, and so I was writing these instrumental songs, and the term surf music hadn't even been coined yet. And uh, a talent scout from Delphi Records that put out Richie Valens and Dobie Gray and Sam Cooke heard us and said, Hey, I like your sound. And so they took us down to L.A., and in one day we recorded a whole album's worth of instrumentals. Oh, my my God. In in one day? In one day. And they said it was some kind of a record. (laughs) And for a teenage band to do this was, you know, pretty amazing. Mm 
And um, so they put out our album, Wipeout, by the Impacts, and that was, uh, let's see, that would have been September of 1962. Hmm. And it was all over in, you know, record stores. And back then they sold uh, LPs in drug stores. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, we'd go in and, hey, there's our album, you know, and we were recording artists and we we loved it and we toured all over california and uh, and then uh you know we moved over to the desert area of lancaster up in the high desert california desert and my dad ran an airport there and i started a, a band a vocal band and we played some of our instrumentals called the exiles and then, you know, it progressed into the mid-60s and the psychedelic era, and uh, uh, 45 or 50 albums later, I'm still going. Wow. <laughs> well, uh, I can imagine, though, that you've seen a lot of changes then um, in the music industry. Uh, oh, yeah. From when you started to the way that it is now. I mean, uh, uh, what's, uh, <laughs> what's, your, what's your opinion on, uh, 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 well... On the changes well, that you've seen, you know, uh, when you when we first started playing, you only had two tracks to work with, mm. and you what you played, you played it live, and that's what you got. Other than being able to change the EQ or the bass or the treble or add a little more reverb to the overall mix, you couldn't, uh, you know, go in and take out the lead vocal or the lead guitar and do it over again like you can now, you know, having multi-track. And uh, so you had to really be good in the studio. And some of those early records, it's amazing, even now when I listen to them, how good they sound and the fact that they were live recordings. And then later on in the 60s, we got to record, you know, in studios that had four tracks and then eight tracks, and we were just amazed. You know, you could go in and add other parts after you'd done the basic track and put the vocal on separate and everything. But the way music, I loved the music in the in the 60s, and that was my favorite era. I loved some of the 50s music, but the 60s music, we really got creative. And... Um, I don't know, Tim. Now I kind of feel like, you know, the music is so manufactured and it's recorded in computers and, uh, you know, you don't even have to play the song all the way through. I know bands that told me, oh, yeah, they just cut and pasted my rhythm guitar part and I only had to play four measures and the engineer said, that's good, I'll just cut it in. And they do that. Oh, my God. They do that with vocals, and then a lot of records don't have live drummers on them anymore. You know, they're programmed drum machines. So it's to me, it's it's gotten kind of sterile and mechanical. But there is some some good music still out there, and yeah. you know, the the country music I think still records in the way we did in the '60s. You know, mm -hmm. they're real right. musicians playing real instruments there you go <laughs> so anyhow that's my take on it well you know merle i've always said that the the true 
uh, measure of any band is how good they sound live. Period. You know, yeah, if they exactly. don't, if they don't sound at least at least as good or, or really better live than they do on the studio track, then that tells you everything you need to know. You're you're exactly right. Whenever I'd hear a band or I'd play on the same bill with some famous band, and if they sounded like their records, you were really impressed. And and you yeah. know that's what I liked about the Ventures. And I I got yeah. to know all the guys in that band. You'd go hear them play and. They do walk, don't run, and boy, it sounded just like that record. Wow! Mm. <laughs> yeah. It... Well, now out of uh, out of all the albums that uh, that you've produced, uh, uh, what's your favorite? Well, um, there's an album that I did that has a weird title, Tim, and it was some of the stuff I recorded up in the desert, and it had some of Captain Beefheart's musicians and Frank mm. Zappa's musicians, because oh. they were all from the high area, high desert area of Lancaster, California. And it was some of the stuff I recorded with my band Merle and the Exiles, and then when that band broke up, I was playing with a lot of those uh, players up there in the desert and studio players. Well, this album came out called Fapper Dockley, and I never thought much of it, you know, and it was out in about 1967, and uh, later on in the 70s, I found out it had become a, like a cult collector's item. Really? And see, yes, and a sealed copy of it now goes for a thousand dollars well i actually sold one to a guy in norway and he sent me twelve hundred dollars and i said you sent me too much and he said oh no <laughs> I'm, I'm glad to do it wow and i had no idea this album was worth this and right. i i knew it got a little bit of radio play but i thought you know oh it's just something i did in the past and it it wasn't on a big label and you know not much happened with it well i was sitting in my little house on the edge of the rainforest on maui and these two german guys came down the trail and said we're looking for demerle fankhauser and i said you found him <laughs> and they said oh we bought yeah we bought the Fapper Dockley album at a record fair in Berlin, and we only had to pay $650 for it. And I went, what? Say that again? And I couldn't believe it, you know. So I flew home over here to California to, went into my mom's closet and started tearing it apart. And I, she said, what are you looking for? And I said, I'm looking for those Fapper Dockley albums. She said, oh, yeah, there's six of them in a box. <laughs> and I sold them all and made over six thousand dollars. Wow! And I went, Darn! If I would have only thrown a hundred of those in the closet. Well, listen. <laughs> here, here's the question, though, Merle. I mean, do you have those saved digitally? Yes. As Sundays, Good. the yeah. label in New York put it out on on CD, and I got the old master tapes. I bought them from the record company and had them digitally mastered and saved the the tapes and you know it's amazing 
those old tapes from 1965 and 66 and 67, if they're stored well, those analog tapes, they still play just fine. And, uh, you know, it's, it's like finding old rare bottles of wine. Yeah. Oh, yes, definitely. Yeah. What 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 about um um what about Moo? Um you know, the name of uh, I I guess it was the name of uh, of your group with uh, Jeff Cotton. Yeah. And uh, uh and then your fir- the first album was named uh, Moo. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that and what was your inspiration? That's uh, you know, I mean that, that's kind of an unusual uh, name for people who aren't uh, aren't familiar with the subject. Yeah. Yeah, Jeff had played with me in the Exiles, and then he went on to play in Captain Beefheart's band. And then after he left that band, we formed a band, and we were living at that point on the outskirts of of Los Angeles. I had moved down there with my band, HMS Bounty, and we had an album out on Uni Records that did pretty good. And that band broke up, and Jeff and I formed Moo. And the way we called the band Moo was uh, we moved into this house in Woodland Hills that we were renting, and I was cleaning up this log bin next to the fireplace, and I found a 1932 edition of The Lost Continent of Moo, a book mm. by James Churchward, right. who had ex- explored the Yucatan and had found all of these writings down there talking about uh, a lost continent that that was in the Pacific Ocean where the Hawaiian Islands are now. So that sparked our interest, and uh, we ended up getting a record deal with ERA Records in Los Angeles, and then later on uh, United Artists signed us, and we made some money, and we were just really studying this theory of the lost continent and that several North and South American Indian tribes said that they came from a now-submerged continent that was in the Pacific Ocean. So we had a friend that moved to Maui, and he said, you, you need to come over here. There's some things that I found when I was just hiking in the forest that are very different, and they're not Hawaiian. And so that really sparked our interest, and we moved over there, and uh, I spent every moment that I could off exploring. And uh, for some reason, the Hawaiian people liked me and would tell me things that they wouldn't normally tell anybody else. And this one old guy said, well, there's a valley down here that you should see what's in it. I used to play down there as a little kid, and my parents said it was taboo, and they didn't want me to go down there, and they said the Moo people might get you. Right. I was going to ask you about that. So this was on Kauai? No, this was on Maui. Maui. Yeah. The Moo people. Now, they so, are supposedly descended from... The original, you know, the the, the sunken civilization yes. people, but aren't they also somehow related to the Menahuni? Menahuni, that's right. And I was just helping uh, Dr. Susan B. Martinez write a book about that. 
Well, well, hey, keep us posted on that because I will be interested in seeing that. I actually was born in Hawaii, by the way. Really? On what island? I was born in Honolulu in 1961, and I have an actual long-form birth certificate, two of them. Wow. So I can prove it. That's the year I graduated from high school, (laughs) 1961. But anyhow, I went down into this valley, and what I found was just stunning. There was this pristine waterfall coming down, a, a small waterfall, and in a semicircle, there were four pillars that were about 30 feet tall, and they were standing on what looked like a Mayan Indian platform. It was cut stone, mm-hmm. and one of the pillars had broken, and part of it had fallen over, and it was laying in this little pool. Then I noticed there was like the same stonework going under this giant howl bush that grows over there. And I got on my hands and knees and crawled and followed it, and I saw it go right off under the ocean, and you could see where the lava flow had flowed over this sidewalk under the water. And that lava flow was over 800 years old. So I knew this was something really old. There's probably an entire city buried there. Yeah, and, uh, you know, German television came over there in the 70s and filmed it, and then they said they did some carbon dating on it, and it was over 10,000 years old. And I used to go down there and meditate, and I took pictures of it, and those pictures are on my website, MerleFankhauser.com. And they're all one of those pictures. Huh? I was going to say, did one of those pictures make it on the cover of one of your CDs? When you were no. sitting on a carved rock? There's one CD where you're sitting on a rock that's got a bunch of carvings on it. Huh. Is that, is that from the, um, uh, the Man from Moo CD? Oh, okay. I'm wow. Sure. You're familiar with that. Yeah, that was on, a, I think, an Italian label. Okay. Oh, wow. yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Actually, I I was sitting there, and what we didn't realize when we took the picture, uh, after we were doing the photo shoot, I walked around to the back, and I found these steps going up to the top of this, what looked like a pile of rocks, and I found out it was a pyramid. Really? Yeah. Yeah, now see, all the experts always say that, you know, oh, well, you know, like the, the Polynesian people you know, in Hawaii, you know, I mean, they, they really didn't work uh, uh, in um, um, massive stoneworks like that. That's yet. true. I mean, yeah, but, but I mean, here you have, I mean, here's some uh, excellent examples of uh, mysterious monoliths there in Hawaii. Well, they were yeah. pre-Hawaiian. They were there mm-hmm. before exactly. the Hawaiians came there from... Tahiti, and on the other side of the island, where there's a thousand-year-old dried lava field, and you can't drive all the way around that part of the island, the road ends past La Perouse Bay, and there's this stone trail with these stone rock walls, and it goes out through this lava field. And some Hawaiians and a couple of surfer guys told me about this big building that was about seven, eight miles out into this lava field, mm-hmm. and you'll walk along this road, and all of a sudden, there'll be a mountain of lava as big as a house, you know, that's flowed over 
this right. stone trail and you got to climb over that then you see the stone trail going again and then you look out towards the mountain and you start seeing uh steps stone right. steps and walls and it's nothing like the hawaiians built because the right. hawaiian stuff is all lava rock stacked up with right know, that's, that, that's, that's what I was going to ask you because, you know, if you're seeing this stuff sticking out of the lava field, then that means there could be an entire ancient civilization buried there. Well, they claimed that there was uh, a white race that lived there when the Hawaiians went there. And at the Bishop Museum in Honolulu has an axe head that was found in this area I'm talking about. And they figured out, they feel it was a Viking axe head. Well, here, that's interesting because Mark Eddy actually showed me uh, some covers. We were on Skype, and he held up some of your CD covers and stuff. I see. And that's where I saw you sitting on the rock. And okay. that rock that you were sitting on, I don't know if it was in Hawaii or not, but the yeah, carvings it on it, the carvings on that rock looked like Celtic carvings. Yeah, exactly. And, and see, was... I mean, I'm an, I'm, I'm an art major, right? So, I mean, I, I, yeah. I know the stuff. And I looked at that rock and I said, now why in the world that does not look Polynesian? It doesn't look no. any, anything to do with Oceania, Oceania or Oceania or however you want to say it. it yeah. It's not Pacific. It looks Celtic. It looks Nordic. So why, you know, it was very weird. And then, yeah. you know, you said something about the Mayan thing. And just mm-hmm. recently they did uh, a DNA study and they found out that, yes, the Easter Islanders are a mix of both, you know, Polynesians and people from South America. Right. So, see, they, they were going back and forth, you know, just like Thor Heyerdahl uh, yeah. postulated. They were going oh, back yeah. and forth. And, of course, on this show, we're all diffusionist. Uh, we believe that people got around everywhere from everywhere else, and they always yeah. have. Yeah. But uh, it, it's just very interesting that – because if there were cultures coming to Hawaii before the Polynesians, it's very possible since those – well, you know that the, the islands are constantly – being created by that, by basically by the same volcano exactly. as, as they drift across it, right? Yeah. So, I mean, whatever was there is going to end up being buried sooner or later under mm-hmm. whatever's coming out of that volcano. Yeah. So even if they were there, I'd say, a, a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago, whatever, mm-hmm. most of the evidence is probably going to be destroyed. Yeah, yeah. But going further out into this lava field, Tim, there's a place up on the hill, up on a ridge there, that there's a building as big as a department store, and it's a Hawaiian building, and it's got these white octopus lures that they put around the doorways. It was some kind of uh, amakua, you know, to protect them, mm-hmm. and and uh, the guy that started Surfer Magazine John Severson first told me about this, and then some Hawaiian fishermen told me about it. So I tried to take a film crew out there, but it's so hot and desolate, and we really didn't take enough water and food, and we even spent a night there, and that was a strange night with the wind blowing through uh, this weird lava formations, you know, it, it, huh. it howls. So anyhow, me and one other guy made it to this building. We actually found it. 
and over in the far corner of the building, there's a hole in the floor, and somebody has taken some Romex uh, electrical cable, tied it around these rocks, and there's this rickety old handmade ladder that goes down, and you can see where people had made torches out of, you know, anything they could find that would burn. Mm-hmm. And when I went down there, I just could not believe what I was seeing. It was almost like I was in King Tut's tomb or something because the same kind of cut stone floor that I'd found on the complete other side of the island, on the jungle side of the island, was there. And there, the walls, and there was even a ceiling like that. And in the corners were these pillars same kind of pillars, but these pillars had what looked like lion's paws carved out of them. Really? Wow. And I didn't have a camera. I had one of the first big, huge video cameras. I had a video guy following me around, <laughs> and and he couldn't. There was no way. We even had people trying to help us, but we were... We were all getting heat exhaustion, and we barely, me and the other guy that went there, barely made it back to where our camp was, and it was a struggle to get the whole group of us. There was about six of us out of that lava field and Mm -hmm. back to civilization, and we just went to a hotel and just dropped. We were exhausted, but the interesting thing, I was on Coast to Coast about a year ago, and a guy emailed me after I was there, and I told this story. And uh, he wanted directions of how to go out there with, I think, his wife. And I said, oh, you don't, unless you're an experienced hiker and you can handle the heat and you've got water and everything, a lot of water, I wouldn't attempt it. And they were on vacation on Maui. And they they went out there into the lava flow, and they made it about five miles. And he took pictures of a lot of the ruins that are under the lava field. And he said, man, I can't believe it. They were there, you, hmm. just where you said. And he sent right. me back these pictures. But his wife got heat exhaustion, and he had to practically carry her out of there. And he didn't even know if they were going to make it. Well, how long how long ago was that? That 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 was just a year ago. I was on oh, coast okay. to coast a, a year ago this last June. I was on the so, June before last. So the ruins may still be visible. They may not be completely oh, buried yet. Oh yeah, they're still visible. I know people oh. that that walk you you only have to walk a couple of miles out on this rock trail I was talking about and you look off to the left and you can see them. It's like there's a whole village half buried under the lava there. And it's called the King's Burial Ground. Most Hawaiians are afraid to even go out there. But some Hawaiian fishermen go out there and stay down, you know, more close to the shoreline, to the ocean, and just fish. And then they get out of there at night. Right. And, so do they uh, believe that, that bad things or, or creepy stuff happens there at night? Yeah. They, they, you know, it's like one of those things that they think is taboo, and people that have been out there at night hear, you know, things howling, and then 
women have heard babies crying. There's all kinds of stories. There's, there's right. stories in books in Hawaii written about that. When when you were down in the underground area, I know it was really hot down in there, but did you notice any passageways leading off even further or anything like that? Well, that's the strange thing, Tim. There's lava tubes out there, and they go off in different areas, and I mean, right. you could get lost or you could fall off of some chasm or something. Uh, when I was doing all of this was in the 70s and early 80s, and it was kind of like I was doing Indiana Jones before they came up with the movie. And uh, an, one other interesting thing, I'd hiked through Haleakala Crater a number of times, and uh, I had a compass, and I was going down the Sliding Sands Trail, and this compass... All of a sudden, it was like it had an electric motor in it. And there was no north or south. The hand started spinning. In in my hand, the compass was just spinning like a propeller. Right. Were you over and, a lava field when that happened? Yes. They say that, that I just asked because running running lava, when it's, uh, when it's flowing, mm-hmm. it actually generates a very strong electromagnetic field. Yeah, so you might have had, yeah. yeah you, you might have had some really you might have been right on top of a, of a serious uh, lava river or something. Well, they say it was all dried lava and there's a bottomless pit in the middle of this crater too, but I asked this old uh professor that uh taught at a private school there since I don't know way back in the early 50s. And here's what he told me. He said, oh, yeah, that's KR-422, and that's what the space people refuel their electric, electromagnetic energy for their spacecraft wow. with. And I went, what? <laughs> you know? And, and, and he went, yeah. But anyhow, I was walking down this trail one other time, and the light, if you can't see or discern what's out in this lava field, because different days, times of the day, the sun, you know, makes these shadows. But mm-hmm. on a certain time of the day, it was about 2 in the afternoon, I was coming down this trail, and I looked out the lava flow, and I saw a pyramid sticking up. Mm-hmm. And I told the rest of the guys in the band, Moo, I said, look at that. And uh, they went, wow, yeah, it's a pyramid. And I said, I'm going to go over there. And I had my mom's old brownie camera with me. And I started trying to get to this thing. And it looked like, you know, it was, oh, maybe, you know, 100 yards away or something. But it turned out to be a lot further. And I had to jump these chasms. And I there was a lava tube I found. And... Uh, I finally got to the thing, and I think it's probably 40, 45 feet tall, and it's a smooth side pyramid. And I climbed up on the side of it, and I got such vertigo, I couldn't handle it. I was really spinning out and thought I was going to get sick. And I got down off of it, and I got far enough away of it that the lighting was right, and I could get a picture of it. What what type of stone was it? 
do you think? Well, you know, it kind of looked like it was basalt, but I really couldn't tell. And see, you're forbidden by the Parks Department to go off of these trails, so I did something that I shouldn't have done. Right. And uh, the lava, you could see, flowed around this, which told me that it was a structure that was probably bigger, and I talked to some other people that knew about it, and they said, oh, yeah, that's a capstone to a much larger pyramid. Wow. Oh, wow. And you know, in Hawaiian, Haleakala means house of the sun. Wow. So uh, all of those things I've documented, they've been in magazines and books, and they're going to be in my autobiography uh, the Merle Fankhauser story, Calling from the Star. There's pictures of all of these ruins there. And mm. as I mentioned, you can also see them uh, uh, on my website, MerleFankhauser.com. And that album you mentioned, The Man from Moo, inside mm-hmm. the album, there's pictures of all of those discoveries in in that album. Merle mm. did. Did you ever, when you did things like went, went to these sites or, or went across the lava field, you know, like you said, you left the trails or whatever, did you ever worry about incurring the wrath of Pele? <laughs> no, I didn't. I, I didn't even think about that. I was just so inspired and driven, and I was younger, you know. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> I don't know, I, I felt this kinship with the Hawaiian people, I don't know what it was. It, it, when I landed on Maui, I felt like I was home. It just felt so good to me. And the old Hawaiians took me in. And like I said, they would talk to me about things. I met one of the last real living kahunas, Sam Lono, on uh, Oahu, actually, there. And he mm-hmm. told me a lot of things that, uh, you know, were there that were from Moo. And then I played for about five months on Kauai, and I talked to people there, and the Moo legend is is totally alive there. And, and people told me about ruins and things they had found on Kauai. Hmm. Well, now, what uh, – uh, the, the, this, is, this is Tim, by the way, uh, Merle um, – what did the old Hawaiians have to say about Moo? I mean, did they, you know, did they have any stories that have been handed down from generation to generation about, uh, uh, you know, uh, what uh, what the civilization was like and who lived there, anything like that? Yeah, well, they claimed that it was first a white race that was living there, and that the people that worked with this white race were, you know, brown skinned little people that they called the Manahunis. The Hawaiians named them the Manahunis. Right. And there's a book that you can still get uh, over there on Oahu called Children of the Rainbow. It was written by a Hawaiian, Leonani Melville, and uh, it tells the, the about the prehistory of Hawaii. And uh, it explains the whole Moo thing in there. 
And I don't think James Churchward, he, he never even knew, you know, about that book because that book. Right. What, what was the title? Later. What was the title again? Children of the Rainbow by Leonani, Leonani Melville. It's, it's, uh, I think it, you know, it was, it was real popular in the sixties, but I think it's been reprinted and republished now. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So did, did you ever have any experience that you thought might have been like the Minahuni or anything like that? No, I, I never ran in. You mean ran into those kind of people, the little people? Or just had, just had some inexplicable thing happen that when you were out exploring and camping and that type of thing? Well, I do remember one time I was in the middle of the rainforest in between Haiku and Hana, and uh, I stumbled into this area and the hair stood up on the back of my neck, and I went, uh-oh, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. And my friend was with me that was exploring also, mm-hmm. and we realized we were in an ancient Hawaiian temple, a heiau. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, there was just some kind of energy right. there that spooked us a little bit, and we got out of there, and yeah. everything was fine. but. There are these canals that were water tributaries that were built in the jungle, and they claim that the Manahunis built all of those. Mm-hmm. And they're still there, you know. You yeah, can and they supposedly live in, ca- in caves and, and stuff that are in the area too, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, like I said, I was really inspired. We named our band Moon. We moved over there in 19... 19- 73 and I lived on Maui till 1988 wow. and then I decided to move back here because I was flying back and forth to California so much to go on tour and record because at that time there were no recording studios on Maui yeah. although Moo did record an album with some equipment that was left over from Quicksilver Messenger Service recording on Oahu, and their engineer had some equipment and brought it over to Maui and recorded an album in our house. And that was out on Sunday's music from New York, a double CD. They put out our L.A. album that was out in 71, and then the stuff we recorded in 74, they put that out on a double CD. Cool. I definitely would like to hear some of that. Yeah. The other thing, too, about the UFO thing there, I was talking to a lot of people there, and I started reading some stuff in books and things and found out there were these odd sightings in Hawaii going back to the 1890s, and they called them the flying pearly shells. And they said things would fly out of the crater and into the ocean, come back out of the ocean and go back up the crater. And this was happening on Kauai and it was happening on uh, on Oahu also. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, hard to say what it was or what they were seeing. But one night, uh, myself and the band Moo went to the top of Haleakala Crater just to see the sunset 
and there was a group of tourists up there, and we were all sitting there and looking at how beautiful it was and how dead quiet it was. All of a sudden, this pulsing bluish-green light comes over the rim of the crater and stops right in the middle. And we're going, what is that? And then all of a sudden, it lit up the floor of the crater, and we're all listening, and all of these tourists are seeing this also. And we thought, well, is it a helicopter? But there wasn't a sound. Hmm. Uh-huh. And then all of a sudden, two more came out from the side and went off to the sides, and they formed a tetrahedron, an inverted pyramid. And there was a guy that was in the Navy in the Second World War standing in this group, and he said, man, he said, I've never seen anything like that. And we looked at it for a few more minutes, and they all came back together and went straight up and disappeared in the blink of an eye. Wow. And that's the only UFO sighting that I've ever had in my life. And it really... It really made me think. Okay, there's there's something there. <laughs> yeah, sir. Do you think they have an underground base underneath the? Down, they're coming in and out through the volcanoes. Well, you know, some people have suggested that. I've gotten emails from people on Oahu that heard me on on um, coast to coast, and this one lady was saying there was a cave by the ocean on Oahu that she thought was an underground base. And then there were people that claimed they thought this bottomless pit that's in the middle of Haleakala Crater could be an underground base. And uh, there's been a lot of sightings. There's been sightings in the 60s. A friend of mine on Maui that's done research since the late 60s, he has a picture of this hula group performing and he didn't even know they caught it when they took the picture but off by this palm tree there's a silver disc right there in the sky hovering and that's in a a coffee table book about ufos and that's one of the only things i've ever even seen or heard about where they talk about ufos in hawaii Hmm. Yeah, you don't uh, you don't hear that much uh, yeah. about uh, uh, Hawaiian UFOs, but yeah. uh, you know, but like you said, I mean, I, I know from a lot of people that I have talked to over the years that uh, it, it really is. It it can almost be a hotbed at time of uh, UFO activity. Right, and I don't know why nobody on uh, the TV show Ancient Aliens hasn't <laughs> hasn't right. talked about this or. I don't know. Maybe we can ask them sometime. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, they'll probably never have us on again. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, you guys after, will after, be on after, there. We're going to be on supposedly this Friday. We'll see what happens. Yeah. So, but but anyway, I, I wanted to ask you since you're talking about all this stuff. It's not Hawaii. It's it's California. Yeah. But I saw some stuff this this week uh, that I that I guess has been out this year where some people think they have found a huge under, underwater entrance and uh, just a huge unnatural-looking formation off the coast of Malibu. Have you heard about yes. that? Yes, and that's what inspired the two songs that you were talking about at the beginning of the 
show. Um, uh, Michael Luckman, the author that wrote Alien Rock, the book, uh, and, and I'm in that book, and I mentioned the things that Jimi Hendrix and the crew saw on Maui when they were making the movie Rainbow Bridge back in 1971. But uh, he told me about this anomaly that's off the coast of Malibu. And I used to surf down there when I was young. And surfers would tell me they'd be sitting around a bonfire on the beach at night and they'd see these things diving in and out of the ocean. And I thought, oh, it's pelicans. They're just fishing because I've seen them do that. And never thought anything about it. Well, Michael Luckman told me, there's a building under there, a huge building. And he started sending me these pictures of it. And it stands out because it's white, and it looks kind of dome-shaped, and it's got these pillars. And the thing is huge. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I was looking at it. I mean, the entrance was like 1,200 feet wide. Yeah, and the pillars are hundreds of feet apart yeah yeah and it's like 600 foot tall pillars and then the this basically what they're calling a a nuclear bomb proof roof on this thing that's at least 500 feet thick right right isn't that something and you yeah to me if that's natural man uh, that's really something because you can see the sand around it and it's a definite different color and uh so anyhow he sent me all these pictures and because he you know he knows i'm interested in ufos and i've written some songs about ufos and and so the next thing i know he sends me these radio signals that were believed to have come from this anomaly off the coast of malibu and supposedly an ex-army guy who was a radio expert was working with his ham radio one night, talking to some friends in Australia, and he dialed off, you know, where he was at on the dial, and all of a sudden he started picking up these odd signals. And he pinpointed where they were coming from, and he didn't even know that that anomaly was out there at this point. Hmm. And uh, he he went, wow, this is strange. And he started recording them. So he sent the recordings back to New York to Mike Luckman. Mike sent them to me and said, what do you think? And I started listening to them, and I realized it was two layers. There's one layer with this, like, code talk over the top. Hmm. And when I started listening to it, I listened to about two and a half minutes, and all of a sudden I started hearing this song and this melody. And the only way I could Hmm. explain it, it was like a 60s surf instrumental sci-fi style (laughs) with a James Bond twist to it, you know, that low uh, mm-hmm. guitar. And I went, hey, this this is something. I'm hearing this. So I ran in the studio, turned on the machine just so I could capture the melody and the guitar part because this has happened before. And right. 
I'll forget the song if I don't put it down or start writing it down and writing the notes right. and the chords. So, so, I so got basically, it all, you were the no, you were hearing noise, which was inspiring you. Yes. to sort of translate it into rock music. Exactly, and I don't think it was noise. I think there's really something to it because I've had a Navy yeah. guy examine it now, and he said the same thing. It's two layers. And he was a radio sonar person, and he said he never heard anything like that either. And I did whale and dolphin research, and I used to record their sounds. It might be a little like that, but I know it's not a whale or a dolphin. So anyhow, I got my band together. We went in and recorded the song, and everybody walked out with goosebumps. Hmm. And... uh, Then I noticed there was four minutes and ten seconds worth of signals that I hadn't listened to. So I went out in the studio and put on the headphones and sat down at the piano, and I started hearing these signals, and all of a sudden, I just started playing, and I didn't really know what I was playing, and I'm really not that good of a piano player, and... uh, I I just played along with the signals, and at the end, I couldn't even tell if I was playing with the signals or if the signals were wow. playing with me, Right. and I heard a whole symphony in my head, Wow. and I, and I got my violin guy over here, who is a, a, a classically trained violinist, Sal Garza, and said, listen to this, and he went, whoa, what is this? <laughs> And I said, it's messages from the dome. And I wow. started showing him these violin parts I was hearing. And he started playing it. And I started directing him. And before we knew it, we had written some kind of a sci-fi <laughs> symphony to these signals. Right. And uh, people that have heard the song with the signals... Now, I'll say it's very calming and meditative. Right. What's, what's the name of the album, Merle? Well, the album isn't finished yet. That's the thing. Oh, man. I, I did the two songs that I was inspired from the signals. The first song was called Signals from the Dome. Second song is Messages from the Dome, which both feature uh, the radio signals. And then we started getting inspired to do more. And so far, we have written and finished and recorded seven new songs. So I'm going for ten songs, and we're going to release the CD as Signals from the Dome. But I've already gotten it on about 40 stations that have just heard about it from Mike Luckman posting it on the Internet and right. I actually got some pop rock stations that are playing it. I would like so, to. I would definitely like to hear it. So when it comes out, you need to you need to let us know, and we'll uh, we'll uh, give you some airplay. Yeah, well, I'll I'll send that to you too. But if you can play both of these, uh, the signals from the dome, and I'm I'm anxious for more people to hear hear it, yeah. Mike and Tim, and give me feedback on. What they hear, what they feel, what they think. I think, I think Tim played one leading in, and maybe he'll play another one as we go to break in a minute. Yes, Good. yes, exactly. And it's uh, it's uh, um, it's just about time for our um, 
um, break. So why don't I um, take us to our break? Um, I will play in entirety the uh, the, the the first track, which is um, let's see on the CD that you sent me. Uh, you, it's uh, three minutes twelve seconds. And you have it listed as signals from Malibu. That's it. Uh, Okay, so we'll uh, we'll start with that one, and then uh, w- when we come back, um, we can talk a little bit about that one, and then I'll play uh, Signals from the Dome. Does that sound good? Messages from the Dome. Yeah. Messages from Messages. the Dome. All right. Yeah, all, right. So, all right, so uh, coming up now is uh, um, uh, uh, Signals from Malibu, and uh, you're listening to The Outer Edge, and we will be right back in just a few minutes, so please stay tuned.
a team of professional consultants behind your home or business computer with key information solutions, providing solutions to your Internet and computing needs while keeping you on the cutting edge of technology, preventative maintenance and networking support, hardware and custom-built computers. Let Key Information Solutions be your personal tech staff for your home or office with affordable hourly, monthly, or annual rates to fit anyone's budget. Call Key Information Solutions now. 954-973-3374 That's 954-973-3374 Or visit keyinformation.com Up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's supermanhomepage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. Supermanhomepage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. Supermanhomepage.com for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the man of steel and more. SupermanHomePage.com Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and I'm proud to be a book person. How do I choose a book? Sometimes it's the cover, sometimes it's the title. I guess I'm pretty visual. If a book's really impressing me and the writing is really good, I will peek and see what the last paragraph is. Because the endings of books should rock you. I am a book person. And if you're a book person, too, read to a child and spark a lifetime of ambition. Join me at bookpeopleunite.org because reading is fundamental. A public service announcement brought to you by Reading is Fundamental, Library of Congress, and the Ad Council. You're listening to The Outer Edge Radio with William Michael Mott and Tim Schwartz, only on PSN Radio. Go. Welcome back to The Outer Edge. I'm Mike Mott. You're with Tim Schwartz and our very special guest, Merle Fankhauser. Fankhauser, is that right? That's correct. All right. And we're surfing along here along The Outer Edge, and uh, uh, Merle was telling us about his... uh, his very interesting experiences with uh, some sounds that he had recorded off off the coast of Malibu, where someone had sent you some sounds from from that anomalous structure there. You know, I was looking at that. I found that thing on Google Earth, and you can zoom in on it, look around it, everything. You can see it. There is no way that it's part of the natural topography. I mean, it sticks out like a giant sore thumb. I I agree, Mike. It it doesn't look natural to me and i mean those pillars and everything oh yeah yeah and you know they want uh michael luckman is trying to get an expedition together to send an rov you know a a robot camera down and go into that opening and you know check it out and look around in there and i hope they can do that and i'd love to get the footage when they do that and put it to the messages from the dome song, right? And yeah. well, you know, I don't know if you've heard this, but there was a rumor that back during sometime during the Cold War, maybe in the fifties or sixties, that a one of our one of our nuclear submarines found a giant entrance off the coast of California and went in to explore it and never came back out. Hmm. Well. I know that and, there is there is that entrance, and it goes clear inland as far as San Bernardino, California. And yeah, there I, I saw been, that. There have How been some, that, though? some submarines that 
went in and did make it out, but you're right, there was one wow. that disappeared. So yeah. you're yeah, so you're saying there have been some for sure that have gone in and come back out. Oh yeah. Yeah. So that yeah, must mean it, that whatever whatever the base is, it's not right there by the entrance. It must be way way up under the continental shelf somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, we were talking about the lost continent of Moon theory. The California plate and the ring of fire that goes up and goes all the way up in Alaska around the Aleutian Islands and, you know, around Mexico, the big island, the volcano, is like the exhaust pipe for this whole plate. Hmm. And this, I can go into the desert here inland 40 or 50 miles and find starfish. So I know this whole thing was underwater at one right. time. So the the land mass has come up and and down a few times. Las Vegas was was a uh, you know, an ocean bay. They found all of this fossilized uh, sea stuff there before. So right. so this you know, the world is constantly changing and we I think we've gone through a a lot of geographical changes uh guys why don't we go ahead and and play the uh, uh the second song messages uh from the dome and uh when we come back we can uh, uh talk about that a little bit more and uh and i want to hear uh merle uh, uh more about your uh, television show okay. <laughs> when, when, you, when you come back so okay right now i'm going to play uh, uh messages uh, uh from the dome so here we go
You've just been listening to Messages from the Dome by Merle Funkhauser. And uh, uh, fantastic stuff, I tell you something. I just, I really appreciate you letting us, uh, letting us play that tonight on the Outer Edge. Oh, it's great. Like I said, I can't wait for people to hear these radio signals that we've put in with the, the music and, you know, give us some feedback on it. Right. Well, I I know uh, feedback from me. I tell you, it's uh, uh, it's it's uh, it's it's mesmerizing stuff. It really is. Great. <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to listening to it after the show. Mm-hmm. And it's really weird because you know before we even before I knew that you were going to be on, I was you know hearing about this thing off the coast of Malibu, and then it turns out that that's what inspired you with this music. That's a pretty weird synchronicity. Yeah. The the whole thing, when Mike Luckman sent me that, uh, you know, I, I, I got driven. And the band and I have been spending like six hours a day in the studio when we're not playing or shooting TV or something. And we've been like driven. And these songs have been just popping out. So I keep thinking... Mike for you know inspiring me to right. to do this and uh, the the cover of the CD Tim you saw it it's got the uh, the anomaly in the background and a UFO on the the cover right right it looks like uh, it looks like possibly uh, one of the uh, UFOs that um, uh, oh, Lazar. Uh, exactly. Said that, said that he saw it uh, uh, Area Fifty One. So yeah, yeah <laughs> it, that's the one. You got it. Okay. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about your uh, your television show, uh, the the Tiki Lounge? Yeah, I've been doing it for almost fourteen years now here in wow. California, and I go over to Hawaii and and shoot stuff, and uh, uh, I've had everybody imaginable on it. I've had uh, Willie Nelson. I've had uh, the Beach Boys, uh, Dean Torrance of Jan and Dean, Eric Burden. Uh, oh gosh, Jefferson Starship. Uh, just uh, lots of '60s people. When they found out I was doing the show. And I started out in 91 actually doing a satellite show called California Music that was on for mm-hmm. three years. It went to 15 million people and about 150 stations across the U.S. And then uh, I got busy again touring and recording, and so I stopped doing the show. But I came back from a tour of Hawaii in 2001, and I had this part of my studio on the back part of my house, and I have a seven-foot-tall Samoan tiki there. And uh, about a year and a half ago, I built an outdoor stage in my large backyard, and it's decorated Hawaiian style. So I have Hmm. people come here and play live with me, and then I interview them, and if they have videos that the record companies produced, we play that. And it's just been a, a really a, a lot of fun. And I, I, 
I have people that just call me up and want to be on the show. As a matter of fact, if you guys <laughs> ever come to California, I'd love to have you on the show, and we can do a whole UFO Lost Continent show. Yeah, yeah we'll do it, man. Sounds yeah, good. Definitely. Yeah. yeah, definitely. You know, if, but uh, uh, <laughs> it's and I've got my recording studio, an audio recording studio, in here too, so I can record live things and uh, the show now goes all over california and hawaii and uh, i used to to be on in uh, michigan of all places in battle creek and in, in ann arbor but really? I'm not on, yeah and i used to get emails from people saying we're shivering back here in the snow and we feel like we're in hawaii when we watch your show <laughs> and uh, that's that's pretty neat. Now and is is, whole, is your program the whole place is, is decorated Hawaiian, so it looks like it's in Hawaii. When I go to Hawaii, the Hawaiians go, "Hey, brah, where are you shooting that show? You're out in the jungle by Hana, right?" And I go, "No, nah, man, I do it on the mainland." And he goes, "No way." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they think I'm in Hawaii. Now is this program uh, syndicated? No, it's not syndicated, and I physically send out the digital tapes or DVDs to all of the stations I'm on in California and in Hawaii. Oh, okay. So, yeah. I mean, they just uh, they just play them, then uh, they all have their own different uh, uh, schedule times, the stations yeah. that show it. Yeah, I send out a show once a month, and all of the stations... Uh, most of them play them three times a week. Here in California, it's on three times a week. And uh, same thing in Hawaii. And, uh, you know, they give me the schedule. And, uh, uh, well, I've been on the same schedule in in California for for a better part of 13 years. And the most popular time is... Uh, 7.30s on Sundays, everybody seems to watch it. But uh, they'll they'll send me random play when they're going to do random play, the schedules, and then I'll post those at Facebook. And, and then I let people know through Facebook when shows are coming out that they can see, you know, out of the broadcast area. So if you go on YouTube and you type in Merle Fankhauser's Tiki Lounge, uh, you can you can see it. There's a number of shows up there. Well, Merle, I know that you play with just all kinds of people. You play with uh, members of the Doors and and Blue Oyster Cult, and just kind of give us an idea of, of during your recording career some of the folks you played with. Oh gosh, one of my favorite people that I played with was pianist Nicky Hopkins, mm. who played with the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and many, many others. He, he'd played with, you know, a who's who of, of mostly 60s rock musicians. And uh, he played on John Lennon's uh, Imagine. And he's on my Return to Moo album playing a song called Queen Moo with me. And uh, I really, really loved Nicky, and he passed away in 94, though. Oh, but he was one of my favorite musicians I played with. And another one 
was Ed Cassidy, the drummer from the band Spirit. You guys remember Spirit? I got oh, yeah. on you, Nature's yep. Way. Mm-hmm. Well, Cass and I were friends for years, and we did an album together called the Fankhauser Cassidy Band, and that's a two-CD set that's still out there. And he played drums clear into his 80s, and he passed away just a few years ago at the age of 89. And so he was my guru because to be able to keep playing drums, you know, until you're 89 years old, that's really an accomplishment. That really is, yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah but I really played athletic. with... Yeah. Yeah. He, his his arms and his upper body and shoulders was... He was still, you know, in good shape when he passed away at 89. Yeah. But I played with John Cipollina from Quicksilver Messenger Service and... Pete Sears from the Jefferson Starship, and, oh gosh, there's so many people. Carl Perkins that wrote Blue Suede Shoes, and uh, it's quite a long list. The guys from Canned Heat, Fido De La Parra, the drummer, I played with him, and I don't know, I (laughs) I have to look at my discography to know them all. Remember them all. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. So I've been very, you, very lucky. I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you uh, do you go out on uh, tours anymore? Well, I haven't done any big tours uh, lately, but you know, I here in California they have these wonderful casinos now that you can go play to. And they have like rooms that hold two or three thousand people. And Willie Nelson and Loretta Lynn had played at one called the Tachi Palace, which is over in the San Joaquin Valley. And I played over there. And they got one just south of us. And then we've got a great concert hall that's had everybody you can think of just about here in this little coastal town of Arroyo Grande where I live, called the Clark Center, and I just played uh, there with Dean Torrance and his Jan and Dean tour that he still does. But I just go out, you know, and uh, once a month I'll do a show like that somewhere, and they still want to take me over to Europe, but uh, I've just been uh, sticking around here lately and doing this recording, and then Working on the TV show, that's one thing. It kind of keeps you tied down unless you can afford to have a crew go out with you all the time, you know, and and video stuff, because I have to keep turning in a new show every month. And last July, we did a 60s reunion band concert out in the desert there, where I lived in the 60s at Lancaster and Palmdale. And and that was really something to see, you know, fans and musicians and people I hadn't seen in 40 years. Mm-hmm. Oh, that, that would have been something to go to. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, man. There was a lady that came to the concert that went to high school 
with Don Valite, who was Captain Beefheart, and Frank Zappa. Wow. And that, that was really interesting. They were in the high school band, and they drove the band leader nuts because <laughs> he'd be doing a, leading a John Philip Sousa march, and they'd be, you know, blowing some avant-garde rock jazz <laughs> yeah. thing to it, and he'd go, something's not sounding right in the back of the room. Frank and Don, what are you guys playing? <laughs> yeah. A lot that of fun. Been, yeah, that Wow, that would that would have been an interesting uh, class for sure. There were a lot of uh, yeah really famous musicians. What would that what would have been in uh, what was the canyon called? Laurel Canyon. Yeah, Laurel Canyon. Laurel Canyon. Yeah. yeah, there were a oh lot of talented gosh. people coming out of there. Yeah, 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 all around the same time too. You know? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That was something. How it all happened around the same time and. Nicky Hopkins and I used to say that our favorite music was, you know, that mid-60s sound when it was so creative and everybody was so excited and and you came up with these great melodies, you know. The the songs then just had that feeling that yeah. it really captured uh, the imagination. Mm-hmm. Peace and love. We need more peace and love in the world now. Yeah, we do. That's 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 true. Well, uh, guys, we've got uh, we've got just a few minutes left here in our program. So, uh, uh, Meryl, uh, I want you to uh, uh, remind our listening audience about uh, your autobiography. That's uh, it's it's coming out soon. Yes, the autobiography, uh, Meryl Fankhauser's story, "Calling from a Star," will be out on Gonzo Multimedia Publishing probably right around Christmas, and it'll be available online, you know, everywhere, Amazon. Yeah, cool. And uh, that's coming out, and hopefully by then I'm going to have the entire new album, Signals from Malibu, out also. Uh, yeah, I'm going to get a copy of that. You uh, certainly will. <laughs> now, are you, are you, is that, are you going to uh, release that, uh, uh, Yourself, you got a, 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 a record company going to do that for you, or what? I've uh, got a couple of labels that are interested that I'm talking to right now, and they haven't heard everything. They've only been teased by those first two songs, and they <laughs> like those. So we'll see what happens. But the interesting thing, Tim and Mike, is this thing: these two songs is just kind of like it's got a life of its own, you know. Right. Uh, the radio is requesting it, and so I've been manufacturing them myself and just going to the post office every day with a box full of them and mailing them out. So it's wow. fun. I, I'm, I'm enjoying it. <laughs> oh, cool. I, I do want to ask you one, one question. Um, if your autobiography is a, is a huge hit, which I'm sure it will be, and they decide to make a movie, which actor would you choose to play yourself? You know, people had already talked about that, and it's funny. The names that have come up is, uh, when he was younger, Jeff Bridges, and, <laughs> yeah. then, and then people said in another era, you could use Brad Pitt. <laughs> So, you know, but but William McEwen, you know, he produced The Jerk by Steve Martin, that movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And he he often talked about doing a movie on my life, you know. So we'll see what happens when the book comes out. And also, I don't know if you guys have heard about this book and now a movie called Inherent Vice by Thomas Pinchon. It's it. It's almost like a Quentin Tarantino movie. Joaquin Phoenix is playing a pot-smoking 60s detective hmm. that imagines clues and everything on the Sunset Strip in the 60s. And they use one of my songs in it from that Fapper Dockley album, a song called Supermarket. That's oh, coming gosh. out. That's coming out before Christmas. So if we go to uh, iTunes or to Amazon, we could probably find uh, MP3s of, of of your previous albums, right? Oh yeah, yeah. You can find the Fapper Dockley album, HMS Bounty album. You can find Return to Moo uh, songs on there. Cool. Uh, you can find most of the Moo things still on there. That's awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, gentlemen, I uh, I hate to wrap this up, but uh, we are out of time. So, uh, Merle, thank you very much for being our guest tonight on the Outer Edge. Uh, uh, when uh, stay on, stay on the line, we'll talk to you just for a few minutes after uh, we get off of here. And uh, so, uh, this is Tim Swartz, Mike. Thank you again for uh, sure, uh, being being with us tonight. And uh, we are going to uh, uh, go out here with a little bit more from uh, Signals from Malibu. So this is Tim Swartz. You've been listening to The Outer Edge. Thank you for listening, and be sure to join us again this time next week for another fascinating program. So good night, and take care, everyone. Thank you. Good night.